1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's begin in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would use these verses and the other verses that we'll be looking at, Lord, for your purposes in our lives. We are grateful that you're a victorious God, that you are victorious over death, and you, are, you, are, you have been extending that victory to us, Lord, and we get to enjoy being victorious because of everything that you accomplished. So now we yield ourselves, we yield our hearts to you, speak to us, whatever you want to speak to us about, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in this world, as things get closer and closer to the end, the end of the age, the end of man's rule on this earth, things seem to be careening a little bit more and more out of control. It appears that things are getting worse and worse, and terrorism and crazy political system going on and um, just all these things and, and this worldwide basic financial collapse that I believe is coming. Um, not to cheer you up too much, um, but it just can't continue to go the way it's going forever. And I believe that will be in part one of the ways that a one world government comes uh, into, into, into place. Um, and the rapture could be part of that, of course. But it's just, there seems to be in this world more and more uncertainty. You, get, you go out there and you talk to people and they don't have a confidence. Those that don't know the Lord, they don't have a confidence of what's going to happen. They don't have a confidence in the future. They don't have a confidence in anything that they could look to to, to feel like they're secure. And, and it's different for us. It's different for us believers because we have a confidence from God. We have a solid, solid confidence because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and his resurrection as we're looking at today. And so it's, it's encouraging for us to look at the things that we can be sure of. This world paints a picture of our faith as if it's a blind faith, that it's something that, well, we don't really know if it's true or not. We can't know if it's true or not. And so we're just going to take this leap of faith and hope that it's true and and they paint this picture that's not true at all related to the evidence for our faith. There's so much evidence for Christianity. There's, there's science. It doesn't contradict science. It doesn't contradict history. It doesn't contradict logic. 
doesn't contradict anything because it's God's truth. So this morning, as we look at, and we won't just look at these 11 verses, we'll look at some other verses as well. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he's going over some things about resurrection, the, the general subject of, of, of resurrection. And he's, he's helping them with a lot of instruction and, and guidance related to these things. And he begins in verses 1 through 4 with a very clear description of the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. If you're new to the Bible, the word gospel means good news. And so what is that good news? He tells us there in verses 3 and 4. He tells us three great facts, that, that, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the good news. That's it. <laughs> we can complicate it. We can add things to it. But the true gospel is just the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation for those who believe. So the gospel is all we need to appropriate to receive eternal life, to be able to receive the free gift of eternal life. And it is a free gift. So we emphasize the cross. We emphasize his death and his burial. But we also emphasize the resurrection. In fact, in Acts that was what they talked about the most. They talked about the resurrection, that Jesus Christ actually rose bodily from the grave. And they say, that those disciples that witnessed him, they, say, they said that we testify that we saw Jesus raised from the dead and we were willing to put our lives at stake testifying to that. Now, as I went over a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew, we looked at the fact that they, they put the Roman guard there and they put all these, the seal over the stone that went, rolled across the, the, the kind of the cave that's of the tomb there of Joseph of Arimathea. And what they did was they, they, dem they helped demonstrate the validity of the resurrection because nobody could steal the body. And, and the, the enemies of Christ would never, ever steal that body because they would, if why would they do that? They wanted to produce the body. They wanted to hold that body up and parade it through Jerusalem saying, this man was a liar. He said he was going to raise from the dead after three days. He didn't. Here's, here's his body right here. See for yourself. The disciples didn't steal the body because they maintained that he rose from the dead and they saw him alive after he died and even to the point where they gave their lives as a result. They didn't get money. They didn't get fame. They got persecuted. They got beaten they got their, their lives taken from them. And so, as it's been said, no one dies for something they know to be false. People die for causes. People die for, you know, suicide bombers die for what they believe. Kamikaze pilots in World War II died for what they believe. But nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. And that is one of the most strongest pieces of evidence that we can present to unbelievers because unbelievers, they, they do want evidence. And there is plenty of evidence for the Christian faith. But that's a very, very strong piece of evidence that the disciples gave their lives saying that he rose from, from the dead. So that raises a question. We're talking about the resurrection. What is the significance of the resurrection? For us as believers, first of all, what does it mean? What is the ramifications of it? Why is it so important? Why should it be important to me? Why do we celebrate it? Why should it be of value to, to, to us at all? 
And what we need to do is we need to understand this for ourselves because if we can't understand it ourselves and appreciate it, it's going to be harder for us to share it with other people. We should talk about the resurrection when we share our faith. We should talk about it. We should be bold about it because, again, there's so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. No one dies for something they know to be false. So we need to understand that he did raise from the dead and there is incredible significance to that. It should bring awe to our lives. And it also should raise confidence, a confidence in all the things that the resurrection guarantees. If the resurrection is true, and the resurrection happened, and he really did raise from the dead, there's a bunch of other things that we can know for sure. And as believers, God wants us to be encouraged in those things. He wants us to be confident in those things. And being confident in those things changes how we live, changes the decisions that we make, changes how we view life, how we view unbelievers, how we spend our, our lives. It, it makes a huge difference. So I want to go over six reasons why the resurrection is important from this chapter. We're going to look at other verses besides these first 11 that, that we read. First one is the resurrection is important because it fulfilled many prophecies which predicted, predicted it. In verses 3 and 4, you may see this repeating phrase there, according to the Scriptures. See, it was important that his death, burial, and resurrection fulfilled the Scriptures. What happened is that with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it fulfilled so many prophecies. And, and basically, if Christ isn't the Messiah, nobody's the Messiah, because nobody could have fulfilled those things and can't fulfill those things. And so what happened was the, you have the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to say very specific things. If you're a skeptic here today and you're wanting evidence that Christianity is true, all you need to do is look at the prophetic scriptures. Many Christians don't know the extent that the, the Old Testament prophets recorded these prophecies that were written hundreds, sometimes over a thousand years in advance so that when the Messiah came, we wouldn't miss him. God is a beautiful artist. We see his creation. We see how amazing he is, how creative he is. But he painted a portrait of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, a beautiful picture. And you have to study the Old Testament to see the fullness of all those scriptures. But as you look at each one of those scriptures and you see this beautiful portrait being painted the intent of god was that when he came that we wouldn't miss him that first of all the jews his own people wouldn't miss him but also after that the gentiles that would come to faith in him wouldn't miss wouldn't miss all of this evidence that uh, he laid laid out uh, ahead of time again we don't have a blind faith we don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a christian there's so much misinformation out there I, there just, I may have told you this, but there was a guy that I recently, a few months ago, came in contact with, and he was saying, you don't have any evidence that what you believe is true. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I have a library of books filled with evidence. And he goes, oh, well, bring me, bring me some of that evidence. I'm like, well, what, what are you talking about? What specifically are you referring to? Because, I mean, you're dealing with the problem of evil. Is that a problem for you? Or the Bible's God's word? Or evolution, you believe that's true? Or whatever it is, you, you believe it's false that... that uh, that um, the exclusivity of, of Christianity is, is being promoted out there? Does that bother you? What is it? 
And he gave me just general things. And I was like, oh, that's easy. I mean, people have written whole books or spent their whole lives dedicated to, to presenting evidence related to that question that you have. So I brought him back a stack of books about this, not kidding, about this tall. And, and I just plopped him on his, on his desk and here, there you go. And he was like, wow, what that, I've never even heard of these authors. I haven't even heard of, you know, I'm like, well, what, when would you hear that? When would you hear about these authors out there? You, you have to recognize that you're not going to hear that out in the media. You're not going to hear it in, mo- in the entertainment world. You're not going to hear it on the news. You're not going to hear a lot of, uh, in a lot of places, this evidence. You have to hear it from a Christian that knows what this evidence is. And God wants us to, to be prepared for that. So there were so many scriptures, and I just want to read a few to you from the Old Testament that were written hundreds of years before Christ was born. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3, where it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you have cursed more, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right in the very beginning when God um, exercised judgment related to the first sin of the first parents, Adam and Eve, yes, Adam and Eve were real people. You know, people, it's so funny when they make fun of that, but if you look at a family tree, and I've told this to skeptics before, when you look at a family tree, the, the more you go up, does it go narrower and narrower, or does it get wider and wider? It goes narrower and narrower. So obviously, as, as the family tree goes up, there's going to end up being two people at the top. Now, you can call them whatever you want, but God reveals that their names were Adam and Eve. And so they fell. They disobeyed. Maybe you've never heard this before, and you're new here. You've never heard that what happened. So in, the, in this garden, God said, don't eat from this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God, and they sinned. And from, at that moment, they died spiritually, not physically. They died spiritually, but the clock started ticking related to their physical death. And that's, there's a lot of religions that talk about what happens after we die, but not many religions can explain why we die. And the Bible reveals why we die. We die because of Adam and Eve, and we inherit their sinful nature. But right after they sinned, God gave this prophecy about one that would come that would crush Satan's head, that he would bruise his heel, but Jesus or the Messiah would crush, would bruise his head. And so right after the problem occurred or the, 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 the travesty happened where they sinned, God promised a solution. God gave hope. And we know from Scripture that, that the, the Messiah was, was slain before the foundation of the world. Um, from eternity past in God's mind. So that's one scripture. But then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and this was written 740 years before the birth of Christ. Listen to this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Matthew quotes this and he says, and he translates it, God with us. Many of us have heard that scripture before. Uh, but this is, a, this is a prophecy related to Jesus' virgin birth, that, that, that Mary never knew Joseph intimately before Jesus was born. After that, he had brothers and sisters, we're told in Scripture. And so uh, this, this prophecy would say that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his, shall be, his name shall be called 
Emmanuel. So that, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, that was prophesied. So there was, had to be a virgin birth, and that happened. Then, at the same time, in Isaiah 53, we're told this. This describes Jesus perfectly. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave and with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So this incredible prophecy, Isaiah 53, you can write that down, you can look at it later, if you've never read it before, again, 740 years before the birth of Christ, God prophesied exactly what was going to happen related to this Messiah that would come. He would be a suffering servant. He would be one that gives his life and sacrificially for others that he wouldn't be trying to preserve his life, that he would give his life up willingly. He wouldn't you know, fight verbally all the way up to that. He would be quiet. He would be um, at peace with the, the portion that the Father had assigned to him. But his death wouldn't be the final say. And of course, that's what we're celebrating today. We're told that he would be cut off, but he would also rise from the dead. And this is a very important scripture Psalm 16, verse 10 says this, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now that was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And it was prophesied in Psalm chapter 16, or Psalm 16, verse 10, that the Holy One, that's always referring to the Messiah, that he would not see corruption, that his body would not decay. Now, obviously, if you have the, the, the Messiah being cut off, and, you, and obviously, if you see that from Scripture that his body would not decay, then that, you put those two together, and it means resurrection. And the, even the disciples didn't fully appreciate this and understand this in the beginning until after he rose from the dead, we're told, in the Gospels. So because he was born of a virgin, he suffered a, a violent death, was raised from the dead, and he fulfilled scripture, we can have full assurance, especially if, because it was all prophesied ahead of time, we can have full assurance that he's the Messiah. Again, a beautiful, beautiful portrait painted. So if you're doubting here, if you're here and you're like, I don't know if I can believe, look up those scriptures. Look at Genesis 3. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Look at Isaiah 53. Micah 5, 2 says he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And there were two Bethlehems at the time. There was a Bethlehem up in the north in the Galilee where he was from and there was a Bethlehem in the south in Judah and that's where he was born. And, and that, that's exactly the one that Micah uh, prophesied about. So that's the first, uh, you know, the first way that we can be uh, encouraged related to the resurrection. But the second one is without Jesus' resurrection, our faith would be futile. 
In our passage, look down to verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 15. Look what Paul says. The implications would be if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Look at verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, in other words, if it's just limited to our lives right now, we are, are of all men the most pitiable. <laughs> I think it's a good way to say it. It would be empty. Our faith would be empty. It would be futile because our faith would be a faith with no hope attached to it. That's why I know the disciples didn't steal the body because they would never say that he was alive when he wasn't because if they weren't getting anything in return in this life, all they have to look forward to is death. And if he couldn't raise himself from the dead, then what makes them think that he could raise them from the dead? There's nothing that could make you have any confidence in God's ability to raise you from the dead if he can't do it himself. That's why any religious leader of any religion or whatever has nothing to say to us about the hope of eternal life if they themselves couldn't uh, raise themselves from the dead. And all of the religious leaders or founders of different religions, they're in their graves. They're dead today. But Jesus is alive. You go to that tomb and it's empty. And it's been empty for all this time. So that gives us incredible hope because we have hope that he will raise our bodies to life. I don't want to live in this body forever. I want a new body. I want a body where I could eat and I don't gain weight, right? And there's feasting in heaven. God's all about feasts. I don't know if you've seen this from the Old Testament. He loves to feast. And he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone's thinking marriage and the Lamb. I'm thinking supper, you know? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, that's, you know, how I am. Uh, but, you know, we, he... He's very much into eating and celebrating and all of that. And in Luke chapter 24, if you want to really see the, how Jesus' physical glorified body was, he, he, he ate, he drank. He said a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. Flesh and bone. And we're told in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, uh, or yeah, I think it is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says we don't know what we will be, but when we see him, we'll, know, we'll be like him because we see him face to face. So our bodies are going to be like his glorified body. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's stamp of approval upon him. His claims, his miracles, his teaching, everything was validated. His claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Are you offended that Jesus says he's the only way? Does God have the capacity or does he have the right to say that he's the only way? First of all, every religion thinks they're the only way. <laughs> and, they, and they all contradict each other at their basic levels of what they believe. So they all can't be correct. You know, only, only one's right or they're all false. Those are only, only uh, options that we have. And Jesus has the right to say, I'm the only way. He's the one that said it. G Christians didn't say that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said it. And God can, can make it as narrow as he wants to make it, or he can make it as broad as he wants to make it. He's chosen to make it narrow because it's based on righteousness, and only righteous, a righteousness from God put to our account can, can cause us to be holy before God. We can't be holy before God in our own righteousness or our own works or our own religious deeds. 
So the resurrection of Christ validated Jesus' life and ministry, especially the redemptive work on the cross. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 4. He said this, The righteousness by faith shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Justification means to be acquitted. When you're acquitted of a crime, you've been justified. And so he's justified us because of the resurrection, we're told in Romans chapter 4. So he died on that cross, but how would we know that it was sufficient? How do we know it was good enough? How do you know that the cross of Christ was good enough and pleased the Father? The resurrection. The resurrection, as it's been said, is the amen from the Father that the cross was sufficient. That when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that he was telling the truth. The resurrection validated validated that. The full price Jesus paid on the cross was Jesus writing a very, very costly check. But the resurrection was the check clearing the bank. That's how we know that, it's, that the cross is sufficient is because of the resurrection. If he couldn't raise himself from the dead, especially in light of the fact that he said it would happen, that he would uh, raise himself from the dead, it's, it's, it shows the validity of everything that he claimed and everything that he did, and it gives us great confidence. The third reason why it's very important, the resurrection, is that it, it provides us a very needed victory over death. Look at verse 20. Look down our chapter down to verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead. And notice it says is risen, not was risen. He's currently risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Again, death is very real. And every religious leader of every other religionist didn't conquer death. We need an answer for death. I'm pretty sure the death rate is still one per person. You know, it's, it's something that is coming our way. It's inevitable. Apart from the rapture, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And, and, and he says, why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust that if I have an answer for death, why don't you trust that and, and be at peace? There's no reason for Christians to fear, be fearful of death. But sometimes we're very fearful of, of death. Death is just a promotion. It's like when you're driving a car and it breaks down and you get out of that car and you, and you, and you start walking to find a, if you don't have a cell phone, to find one of those booths with the phones, you know, I don't know if anyone uses those anymore. But you, that's what it's like. You get out of your body and you keep going. And then one day he gives us a new, uh, a new body. So we see these, these four little words in verse 22 where it says, um, in Adam all, or excuse me, yeah, verse 22, in Adam all die. That's certain. It's absolutely certain. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, you need an answer for death. You need to have that taken care of. You need to have an answer for it because it's an enemy that's lining itself up with, 
against you and will win. And you have to have an answer for that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the solution. One day the religious leaders came up to Jesus and they wanted a sign from him. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So his resurrection is the sign, the sign for, for mankind just to know that he is the Messiah. Apart from all of the other prophecies which are valid and they're true, the sign is the resurrection from the dead, his resurrection. And so because we can trust in him and because he's conquered death on our behalf, we can have full confidence that he's going to raise our bodies to life. You know, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, he will also raise up your bodies to life. Especially during the, if the rapture happens in our lifetime, which I believe it will, the Holy Spirit living inside of us will be what causes our bodies to be transformed in less than a nanosecond into our glorified bodies. So it's a great reason to rejoice. Number four, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is important because it affects the way we live right now. Look, look down at verse 32 in our chapter here. Verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. The resurrection of Christ gives evidence that the dead will rise, and the fact that, he, that we will rise as believers means we will someday meet face-to-face with a risen Savior. And that reality purifies us to know that we are going to see him face-to-face. Just stop and think about that for a moment. If you know Christ, you are going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ face-to-face and see him. You're going to look into his eyes and you're going to give an account for your life. And, and that should be something that creates holiness in us, uh, being busy about his business, serving with the motivation that he wants us to serve in with love and, and, and as an expression of worship to him. But it's supposed to change how we live today. And I couldn't know that apart from the resurrection of Christ. I want to ask you a question, just a searching question, and I, I'm asking myself too. Do you live like Jesus rose from the dead? Do you live as if Jesus rose from the dead? What do I mean by that? Do you live like you're going to meet Christ one day, that you're going to give an account for your life, do you live in such a way that would bring that your desire is to bring him glory, for him to be pleased by your life, and, and to, to have him enjoy your life? Or another question would be related to that is, are you horrified by death? Is, are you living as if related to death like an unbeliever would who have no hope? Do you functionally, practically live as if you don't have an answer to death when in fact you do have an answer to death? as a Christian. You know, sometimes we act like death is like the absolute worst thing, 
that could ever happen to a Christian. And Paul said, you know, I'm kind of torn because I desire to be with Christ, to pardon, to be with Christ, but I also desire to be here for, because of the benef- how I could benefit the church, uh, being here and serving and, and so forth. So we, we, we want to have that consciousness that we could go at any moment, but it's a promotion. It's a good thing. It's something that, yes, we don't want to leave our family behind. We don't want to have our family grieving, missing us. Of course, all those things are valid. But we should be looking forward to that day when we're with him, that we're free from this sinful nature. We're free from the fall uh, and the curse and this world and all of those things, and, and we get to be with him. Another question related, if we live like Jesus was raised from the dead, do you live out your faith in front of others as if there's no evidence for your faith? Do we live out our lives in front of others as if there is no evidence for Christianity? That we're, we're hoping that it's true. We're living as if we're hoping that it's true, but we don't really know for sure that it's true. God says, I want you to live as if all of it's true because it is true. We're supposed to, our, li- our lives are supposed to align with the truthfulness or the truth of Scripture. And so he's, he's, he's a, you don't serve a dead Savior. I don't serve a dead Savior. We serve an alive, a, a Savior that's alive and well and on the throne and interceding for us and wanting to work in our lives every single day and lead us and guide us and work through our lives and do miracles through our lives and, and affect people's lives for good. That's what he wants our lives to be about. And the resurrection um, affects that, affects the way we live. Jesus, also number five, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is important because it is the guarantee of our own resurrection into heaven. Look at verse 51 in chapter 15. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And that's a good sign over a nursery at a church right there. And some people have done that. Um, but it's meaning something totally different. <laughs> Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, the twinkling of an eye, what is that? It's when you see light flash off someone's eye, reflect off someone's eye. That's what it means in the original language. That's how fast. As fast as, as, as light can flash off someone's eye is as fast as we're going to be translated into our new bodies and be with, with Christ. And it says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul seems to be doing some taunting here of death. A little sanctified neener neener, you know, um, just saying, you know, where is your sting, death? Where is your victory, uh, you know, Hades? Where, where, he's saying that that's been removed. You know, there's a story, it's a well-known story of a, of a father and a son in a car, and the son was allergic to bee stings. I'm allergic to bee stings, and I know the fear that bees can bring at any moment when they're around. 
and there was this son that was allergic, and um, this bee came in, and you know, when there's something in the car, you know how it is, and some bug or something is total panic, and you know, where, where do I go, and I got to pull over, and you're trying not to crash, and you know, and it's just a little tiny, you know, gnat or something, but when a bee comes in to, with a car, and people are allergic like that, it's very, very traumatic, obviously, and I've had that happen where I've actually gotten stung. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're going to the hospital, you know. And uh, so there's this, this bee that comes in, and, and the, the father pulls over, and the son is crying and horrified, and, and, and the, the father grabs the bee and puts it in his hand and gets stung, and, and the, the son is still panicking, and he's like, son, calm down, it's okay, look. And he opens up his hand, and the stinger is in his hand. He said, once that stinger is removed, it can only sting once. So you're safe. And it's a great illustration of death. Because of the resurrection, he's taken the sting out of death. He's taking, for the believer, not for the unbeliever, for the believer, he's taken the sting of death away, out of the way, because of the resurrection. Death will not hold us down. We are going to be raised from the dead. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's, you know, we, 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 you know, the rapture happens and today, and we get raptured and taken up but if he doesn't choose to do that in our lifetime and we go and to be with the lord we can have total confidence that he is going to raise us up and we're going to have new bodies someday where we can eat and and we can enjoy you know he went through walls i'm almost excited more about the eating without gaining weight than going through walls but he just appeared among them they were shocked they were like where'd he come from and he just shows up i mean wouldn't you like to be able to do that you know philip in, in the book of Acts, didn't even have a glorified body and the Holy Spirit translated him to another whole area. How would you like that to happen? We don't even need a new body for that. Can you imagine if we have a new body, what it's going to be like? You just think and you're there. Boom. You're just right there. You're not limited to lo- location. You know, at the end of the Jesus' thousand-year reign, we're told that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It will not be an enemy to us at all. It's not an enemy now, but especially then. And we're told in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I can't wait for that to happen. Someday to be able to have all of that wiped away and so forth and i believe some of that will probably include us on our remembrance of people that we recognize are not in heaven that we wanted to have in heaven but they're not it's hard for me to imagine how we could enjoy heaven for all eternity knowing that loved ones or friends are not there so that's just a a, you know a, a theory but um very well could include include that but he says oh death where is your sting oh hades where is your victory and, and it's beautiful because he knows that there can't be a victory from death, that death can't be victorious over our lives because of the promise of God in our lives to, to raise us from the dead. So that's five. The number six, and finally here, is the fact of Jesus' resurrection. It's important because it provides us confidence that our service to the Lord will someday be rewarded in heaven. Look at verse 58 says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor 
is not in vain in the Lord. No, Paul said it this way. He said that I, I, I trust him with, with that which I've entrusted to him for that day, the day that he meets him, the day that he gets rewarded for all, everything that the Lord had him in the middle of and, and doing and so forth. And he knew he was going to give an account to Christ someday, and it was a joy to him to know that that's going to happen. But without the resurrection, we could not have that confidence that we were going to stand before him. In Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that all of us have a part to play in building up of the body, in making disciples. It says every part does its share. So the leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry, but then everyone uses their very specific spiritual gift or gifts to build the body up so that we can be built up and strengthened and brought into maturity. That's the purpose of the church. We come together to worship him, but we come together to be made into disciples. And he wants each of us to be used by him uh, and that's his plan. And if we're not partaking in that, we're not part of how he set things up. So he wants, maybe there's some here that you're, you, you haven't been you know, serving in the place where you feel like God has called you to serve. And, and so you can take that to the Lord and you can pray and he'll reveal it to you. You can bring it to us and we can maybe verify or validate some of your gifts and say where the needs are and all of that. There's a place to serve. And so we want to be busy about his business. And he says there, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. We're going to receive a reward. I can't believe that he actually is going to reward us when he does all the work. He sets up the divine appointments. He gives us his word. He convicts people by the Holy Spirit. He gives us gifts. We step out with our free will that he's given us, and we serve people and love them. He changes their lives, and then he rewards us at the end. He's just an amazing God. He's just a, an incredible, gracious God. And all of that, he's not going to miss one bit of service, one bit of obedience, one bit of worship that we express in serving other people. He's not going to miss any of it. We're going to be rewarded for all of it. And all of it would not be possible without the resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to celebrate. Thank you that you have that victory that we get to enjoy and be a part of. I just pray, Lord, that you would just continue to work these verses in our hearts, Lord. Help us to just celebrate you and one another throughout the day. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives, Lord, through the fact of the resurrection. In Jesus' name.